portions that we might note in the passage that I just read. One is the final words of covenant confirmation. That would be verses 15 through 19 or 18. The Lord in the form of the angel of heaven speaking directly to his servant. And then there's a sort of change in the chapter that's indicated or in the record of events by some parenthetical notes, if you will. Two things where Abraham chose to reside and some extended family lineage situation. So that's a brief overview of the structure of our text. Now let me hit on two other structure points from the larger body of Genesis. This is by way of introduction. Two major structural elements in Genesis, in the Genesis record particularly of Abraham, help us understand the significance of these events in chapter 22. And so as we look at the greater context, there's two things I want to highlight. First of all, it's the element of recurring emphasis that is the idea, the concept, the uh, construction of covenant is used over and over again in Genesis. I know you're familiar with it if you've been following in this sermon series because it keeps coming to the fore. So this emphasis on covenant throughout the biography of the patriarch helps us to greater understand and place these moments in context. This is a major point of emphasis featured once again at the offering of the promised son on Mount Moriah. Genesis 12, just to give you a brief overview and four points of, of covenant that we see in Abraham's story. Genesis 12 opens the early chapters of the patriarch and we are reminded in that passage, God, or just re, to remind you of that passage, God promises him to make him a great nation and through him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So let's call that covenant promised in Genesis chapter 12. And then we fast forward a little bit and we get to another uh, chapter, chapter 15, and let's call this covenant ratified. In chapter 15, there's that solemn covenant cutting ceremony where animals are split in two and the Lord himself this time revealed in smoking flame and fire pot walks between the pieces. It's a covenant ratification, oath swearing ceremony. Something significant indeed is happening we see in this instance, in this ceremony, covenant ratified. Covenant promised in Abraham's experience. Secondly, covenant ratified. These are categories that I picked up in my study of different commentaries. They're echoed by no, numerous scholars as high points, milestones, and understanding God's word to his servant. So by solemn oath, the covenant's ratified. Then we turn to chapter 17, and here we might call it covenant signified. A covenant confirmed by sign in this case. The sign of circumcision is presented to mark its membership, seal its meaning, and future orientation for those among the males in the lineage of Abraham. So we have covenant promised, ratified, signified, and that leads us to our text today. We'll call it covenant confirmed. Today, in dramatic and climatic way, the covenant, God's promises, His word, the message of salvation, all that synonymous with covenant, is confirmed to Abraham. And it's in the context of the commandment to offer the covenant or the significant or the promised son. So in these pages, in our text today, Yahweh, the Lord himself from glory, reassures Abraham of the promised blessings, even as Abraham's faith endures through an excruciating test. The commandment to offer as a burnt offering his only and beloved covenant son. Now the second major structural element in Genesis that provides greater context 
is this advent of probation, which is a theological or technical term, but it simply means testing or trial. It is an appointed time of judicial review. And we've seen this a number of times in the text as well. This aspect of covenant is as ancient as the experience of Adam and Eve in the first place. They were placed in a garden in a probationary scenario, if you will. They were tested. Do you remember the test? Kids, what was the commandment that God gave Adam and Eve? Not to eat the fruit of the tree of? Knowledge. Knowledge of good and evil. And on the day that they ate that fruit, the Lord said they would surely... But the, and then by implication, of course, obedience is unto life. So there was a test of Adam and Eve's obedience. The tree was placed in the garden. If you do eat from all the other trees and do not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will proceed, advance unto life as it were. But if you break covenant, fail the test, do not pass the probation, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day you shall surely die. die is correct. So this idea of probation, of testing, comes to the fore right from the beginning pages of Scripture. But there are other probations as well. Judicial visitations of testing, that is, God as judge reveals the heart condition of certain people at certain times by prescribing a test. This aspect of covenant is also seen at the Tower of Babel. And you remember the language. God is going to come down in judicial reckoning and visitation and see if the rebellious testimony of Babel is indeed legitimate. And upon that review, upon that test, Babel fails, God judges, the people are dispersed, language is confused. And likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord comes. Remember the angelic beings, they go, they visit this city and they see whether the testimony of great evil and perversion and wickedness, homosexuality, and great degradation of God's prescribed created order is indeed the case. So they visit Sodom, a judicial review, a probation, a test, a trial. And what do they find? Indeed, the cities are wicked, worthy of judgment. And so upon the Lord's command, sulfur rain from heaven destroys the cities of the plains and renders the valley infertile for an indefinite period of time. Judicial reckoning, trial, testing, probation. A visitation of judicial review by the God of glory showing, revealing the condition of the hearts of, his, of these, his created beings. Now, in our text today, God visits Abraham also with an appointed probation test or trial. Remember, this is the context of what we are dealing with here. It says, now I know that you fear the Lord. The Lord himself says this, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You see, implied there is a context of a test. Abraham was tested. Verse 22, 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. So now the results are different. There is quite the contrast. Sodom and Gomorrah were tested, found to be wicked rebels, and destroyed. Likewise, Babel dispersed similar judgment. Yet when Abraham is tested, what is found? A heart of faith. A faith in covenant promises superseding death. And so God's trial reveals in the crucible of affliction, if you will, in the trial, the commandment to sacrifice even his own son, the heart of Abraham 
believed that God had the power to raise the dead, was revealed. So this probation and obedience will be an echo. It's an event that serves as a forerunner or a shadow of a second Adam to come. The first Adam failed the probation and cast all of creation into sin. Abraham, let I, may I submit, it serves as a prefiguring or a shadow of a second Adam to come. One who is also tested like Adam, but unlike Adam, he passes the test. Of course, Abraham, ultimately speaking, is not the second Adam, but he does point forward to the second Adam. Jesus Christ will be tested in the wilderness of temptation, and he will satisfy in his probation and obedience every demand of God's holy law, such that his testing and his passing of the test will be sufficient to justify the elect when his righteousness is counted as our own. And so these are some of the greater context in which we can better understand these events. What is testing in this way or probation? Well, these are events which God discloses to us, the hearts of men and things otherwise unavailable for us to see. God knew them by virtue of his decree. God didn't learn anything here. But these are made known to us and in the record of scripture through his servant Abraham by virtue of their manifestation in time. God is revealing the heart of his servant through this testing time. So with those major points of context in view, let us further consider how to understand the covenant confirmed under this heading. God's word to Abraham in covenant context. Another possible heading could be elements of covenant confirmed. So there's elements of covenant confirmed in this passage as we read, and especially in the second calling, if you will, from heaven, from the angel of the Lord, and uh, we find these in our text today. I'll have three subheadings or three main points for you this morning. First of all, divine proclamations. Secondly, prophetic scope. And thirdly, corresponding events. So there's elements of the Abrahamic covenant that are clarified or confirmed in these ways, through proclamation, through prophetic scope, and through corresponding events. First of all, by proclamation. God's word to Abraham in covenant context comes by way of proclamation. And there are, two, there are three proclamations, but two of them which are similar. This is that twofold device, that highlighter, if you will, that Moses is using. Notice in verse 11 how it corresponds to verse 15. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So this is a proclamation or a calling of the angel of the Lord from heaven to his servant. This language is repeated in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, you know, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, and so on. So here we have a twofold proclamation, a twofold reference of divine calling. That is the word of God proceeding from God's divine agent. Christ revealed to Abraham, if you will, twice. And this is interesting because these two separate proclamations have themes about them. In covenant revelation, what do these two proclamations distinctly reveal? Well, in the first calling, we see that the main theme is atonement provision. So in this twofold proclamation, we find, first of all, clarified atonement provision. God's covenant Promises are always attended by a sacrifice 
a substitute, provision for sins, forgiveness, covering, and atonement. And that is what's pictured in Proclamation 1. Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, that is, the angel of the Lord, God himself from glory, verse 12, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Again, significant language, your son, your only son. And more significant language, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, right, caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham took went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering, key phrase, instead of his son. So Abraham called uh, the name of that place. Kids, what's the name of that place? The Lord will provide is correct. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So Abraham names the place after the theme of the first proclamation, which is atonement provision. God provides a substitute sacrifice, one to die in the place of the Son, to cover sin as it were, to be that burnt offering so Isaac did not have to die. This message of covenant confirmed will be, will be carried through all the way through Scripture. And I'm sure you guys recall some of our prior connections. But when we see a ram caught in the bush, what are we to recall of the future a fulfillment. Well, Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, the one crucified for us. Not to take the analogy too far, but this ram was caught in a thicket by its horns. And you can almost see a picture parallel, can you not, when thorns are pressed upon the brow of the coming one, the lamb of God who will be crucified in our place. These connections become more clear when you realize that the proclamation of covenant promise was a foreshadowing, it was a prefiguring, it was a, a sign and a symbol of something to come. Just like a ram was caught in a thicket, so a lamb, a man, fully God and fully man, would have thorns, a thicket as it were, pressed upon his brow. And by that very means of the crushing and bruising, by the killing and the bloodletting, and by the excruciating death and crucifixion of the Son of God, so atonement, provision is ours. So the first proclamation is atonement provision. The second proclamation is themed in 17 and 18, those verses around covenant blessing. Notice in 17 and 18, we have the second time the angel of the Lord proclaims from heaven or calls from heaven. He says, in verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. And then we have the theme of the second proclamation, 17 and 18, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The covenant is clarified in these terms. Proclamation 1, a sufficient sacrifice, atonement provision. Proclamation 2, blessings that will follow. We had a great conference yesterday in Common Slaves, and one of the major themes of that conference is how the church sometimes underestimates the power of the gospel to affect and to change and to influence culture. You see, in the evangelical church, we're probably stronger in the modern age on the message of repent and believe in Jesus 
the, at least where the a true gospel is proclaimed, we're probably stronger on the ground that, you know, Jesus is the substitute sacrifice. He is the atonement provision. But sometimes we don't look beyond that to the effects of these very things proclaimed by covenant promise as we begin to reorder our lives, our society, our confession, our worldview, our actions, our decisions, our relationships accordingly. But you see, there's a twofold proclamation of the covenant right here. And one is the ground, the atonement provision. The second is the effects, great blessing. And this blessing is powerful. We're talking triumphal blessing that can conquer the gates of cities. We're talking triumphal blessing that can spread the good news around this globe to every nook and cranny and corner of the earth. We're talking a transforming influence of the Holy Spirit of God and the proclamation of the gospel that can transcend language, time, people group, ethnicity, differences, sin, and identities, and all these things that the neo-Marxists want to throw into our faces, intractable and insoluble differences between men. No! They are shattered and crushed and transcended and bridged and healed as the middle wall of separation falls down when the gospel is proclaimed. And this is the blessing. And this is the effect of the atonement provision exalted and emphasized and proclaimed and applied worldwide for 2,000 years. And that message is as relevant and powerful today as it was the day it was proclaimed by their first apostles who turned the world upside down. It's time for the world to get turned upside down again through a bold proclamation, albeit from a few, the power is nevertheless all in God's almighty hands, and oftentimes he is pleased to use a bold, convicted few. Why? Because when he does mighty things, he alone gets the glory. So we have covenant proclamation, in atonement provision and covenant proclamation in covenant blessing in that's confirmed in this and then we also have an interesting twofold agency if you will and in our text today we find there's many element and a singular element verse 17 i will surely bless you and surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore so this is the multitude the cloud of witnesses this is the whole scope and scale of the elect and the fullness coming in that is pictured and prophesied in these words of promise to Abraham. This is a throng too many to count that populates that glorious table spread with the marriage supper of the Lamb so far into the distance the human eye could never trace its end. This is the powerful gathering of all the assembly of the Holy Church of God through the course of history unto the praise of His great name. But then there's also a shift in the text. From the multitude to the singular, and this was pointed out to me in my study, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And isn't this interesting? There's a singular personal um, individual element as well as a corporate one. And what is clarified by this kind of language? Well, surely God will, preserve, will gather for himself a multitude of offspring to the praise of his great name, and he will do it through one man. The offspring of Abraham, the one man Jesus Christ, has the power in his work to defeat all the enemies of the multitude who will be grafted in because of his work. It says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Ultimately, who is that offspring of Abraham through which the nations will be blessed? 
That is a single man. That is Jesus Christ. So isn't it incredible right here we see packed into the way that this covenant is revealed to Abraham by the voice of the angel of the Lord, that there is a multitude element and there's also a singular element. That is through the one son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the multitude sons of Abraham will gain power to overcome their enemies, even sin in the grave. Praise his name. And through the one son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the multitude sons of Abraham will be a blessing through the great commission to all the nations of the earth. Divine proclamation. Major point number two. Again, another element of covenant confirmed. We find a prophetic scope. More on this prophetic scope in verses 17 and 18. So this illustrates how vast, how broad, how powerful this plan of God really is. And again, these words can't be repeated enough. I surely bless you. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what is the prophetic scope of God's plan through his covenant delivered in seed in small form to Abraham? Yet flowering, overflowing and a multitude of generational power as it advances. God's purposes through the lineage of Abraham, through history. What is the prophetic scope? Well, there are two metaphors of magnitude, if you will. How big is it? Well, if you could count the stars of heaven, you would have an idea. If you could count the sand by the seashore, you'd have an idea. So just this illustration became more poignant to me in our recent trip to Florida. And we rented a transit van to fit all 11 of us in, right? So we went to the beach on a number of occasions. By the time that van was ready to be returned, I guarantee not a person in this room could count the grains of sand that were stuck to the carpet of that Ford Transit. <clears throat> and just illustrates to you, sand is so plentiful and so small. And then you go to the beach and now your job gets even bigger. I mean, it's an unfathomable task to try to account for every grain of sand. Only one person, so to speak, in the universe possibly could, and that would be the creator and the numberer of the hairs on your heads. He certainly knows the grains of sand. But that is a comparable analogy to the scope, to the magnitude. It's a metaphor of magnitude of God's glorious power. So that's the sand on the seashore. And the stars of heaven, of course, the more we learn about space, the greater this analogy gets. And this is one of the glories of science. You know, science is much maligned, must misuse and abuse these days. But one in, indeed, one of the great glories of science is the more we are able to observe about the known universe via the tools that we have, the greater the metaphor of magnitude becomes in our minds as to the power and the purposes of God and redeeming a people for himself, even described as as many as the stars in the heavens. One more note on this, though. Notice, it's an example from the heavens and it's an example from the earth. I don't think that's by accident. In other words, the prophetic scope of God's purposes in his covenant encompasses heaven and earth, the stars of the heavens and the sands of the sea, to picture, if you will, the cosmic range of God's purpose. Yes, I love phrases like that. The cosmic range of God's purposes. That means God has purposes in time. He has purposes with the decisions that you will make next week in your day-to-day you know, apparently mundane lives, and he has purposes in eternity. 
He's the God of the grain of sand on the seashore. He's the God of the galaxies. He is the God that is transcendent, over, above, and encompassing and surpassing all. And he is the God who reaches into your daily lives to answer a prayer that you desperately need for a simple decision on Monday morning by giving you some reassurance from his scripture. Here's a principle to apply for the next step that you can take in your, relatively speaking, mundane, ordinary, day-to-day life. So these metaphors of magnitude communicate something to us. The scope and the range of God's purposes from heaven to earth, a multitude too big to be numbered. For time and eternity, the evidence and the fruit of this covenant will continue to the praise of God's great name from the throats of a throng too many to number who will assemble in glory one day. And our little assembly is just a foretaste of that glorious reunion we will soon have. Prophetic scope. Not only the number and the cosmic range, but also legacy and exploits are in view. So what will the legacy of Abraham accomplish? 17. Surely I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring. And it says in in the second part of the verse, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So once again, I forgot to mention it before, but we have another twofold here. Twofold stars of heaven, sand of the sea. The twofold here has to do with exploits. Possess the gates of your enemies and a blessing to all the nations. These are the legacy and the exploits illustrating the prophetic scope of what God's people through the ages will accomplish by His grace and for His glory. Number one, there's a judgmental aspect, a judicial aspect, if you will possessing the gates of the enemy. Number two, there's a redemptive aspect, if you will. All nations blessed through their testimony. So some of you, I'm sure, could answer this question. But if I asked you, what is associated with the term gates in the ancient times, indeed in the scriptures, what might you fill in the blank with? Well, let me give some suggestions. Gates are representative of the center of commerce of a city, the seat of government, the cultural norms, where law cases are heard, where justice is metered out, where the elders reside and proceed to rule and direct a society. It's the place whereby entry and egress is either denied or permitted into a particular place. So those who are welcome can come in, and those who are enemies are excluded. The gates of the city represent the point of entry. They represent the significance, the beating heart, if you will, of a civilization. And notice in our text here, That the message by prophetic proclamation is the sons of Abraham will possess the gates of their enemies. Is your faith big enough that God might give a small cadre of gospel-believing Christians the power to possess the gates of America? Well, I confess to you my faith is too small for that in most days. But I've received correction by reading God's word in this covenant confirmation to my forefather Abraham. The Lord is testing us. You could think of it as something of a probation. Yes, wickedness is increasing. But is that increase of wickedness, is that pressure and tension of the evil of our day, is that depressing you spiritually? Or will you be like Abraham, the man of faith, the one who is held out as an example, who's gone before, that even if the Lord calls his son unto death, he knows he has the power to raise him up again. And even if evil seems suffocating in our day, we know that God gives his saints the power to possess the gates. If they are but faithful to him, he will do it in his time and his way. 
And I don't, I don't have a strategic plan for us to be successful in the next five years to possess the gates of America. And I don't recommend you join a second capital siege attempt or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. But I do know that the power of Jesus Christ through a convicted few absolutely can change a society from the inside out. Few examples in scripture. So when the Hebrews are on their way to the promised land, they had some formidable obstacles in the way. We talked about a few of them last week as far as forces of nature, the Red Sea, the Jordan, etc. But that wasn't all. There were cities in their way. And to some degree, these were at least as fearful, uh, you know, barriers, uh, hindrances, roadblocks to the people as anything else, right? They had to travel, they had to wander in the wilderness an extra 40 years because they're afraid of giants in the land. People of large stature with power, influence, war-making abilities, and walled cities, one thinks of Jericho. Did God fulfill the word to Abraham centuries later when the children of Abraham entered the promised land? Did he give them possession of the gates of Jericho? Oh, yes, he did. And he did it in spectacular fashion. Kids, what happened to the walls of Jericho? That's right. At the word of the Lord, at, uh, in his serv- through his servant Joshua, proclaimed to that city, this ragtag band of unlikely refugees, no doubt what they looked like from the tops of those city walls, obeyed the Lord, marched around seven times on the seventh day, and in an instant became possessors of the gates of the city of Jericho. And this happened in city after city after city. Another example, New Testament. Paul is out proclaiming the gospel. And he goes to the Areopagus, which is a place. It's a gates. Uh, Mars Hill is another name for it. It's a place where the philosophers, the important men, the significant ones, the court cases are held. It's the plaza. It's the town center. It's the city heartbeat, right? And he goes to this place and he begins to preach what is foolishness to man, but is the wisdom of God, the gospel of Jesus, dead, buried, and resurrected. And some scoff, but others listen. And suddenly he has the ear of people in authority and scribes and and philosophers and the like, men of influence. And eventually God used this kind of proclamation to reform cities, to turn the Roman Empire upside down, to cause riots on some occasions because of the disruptive influence of a small, unlikely band of apostles with faith and those who followed them being willing to believe that God in his due time and in his way gives his people power to possess the gates of their enemies. So be encouraged by that, saints. These are the legacy and exploits prophesied of you and me and all who join in this legacy. The offspring of Abraham shall possess the gates of his enemies. But further than this, that's sort of the judicial aspect as I mentioned, Uh, We shall be a blessing, the scriptures say, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Possessing the gates and all nations blessed. That's the redemptive aspect. And of course, we can think of the great commission and the commandment to go and to be witnesses. My witnesses, Jesus says, to Judea, very local, tangible area you could walk to at the point where he proclaimed that to Samaria, a little farther distance, but if you packed your bags, you could get there probably in a couple of days. And to the uttermost parts of the earth, an overwhelming task. But how did he accomplish it? Through generations of the faithful who, when tested, demonstrated a heart transformed like that of Abraham, that God would give them the call to witness wherever he would place them to the nations to bless them with the only way of salvation, the message of faith alone in Jesus Christ. 
This is the prophetic scope illustrated by metaphors of magnitude, the legacy of and exploits of those in the line of David. So spent too much time on that point because it was a fun one. I'm going to go to number three. Corresponding events. So elements of covenant confirmed. Corresponding events. There are bookend events at the opening or kind of that introduce this covenant situation and then that close this covenant situation. Those are also significant, may I submit. The first idea comes to us as covenant conditions. So there's conditions for the covenant that Abraham fulfilled in this picture. Verse 12 tells us as much. The Lord, the angel of uh, the Lord from heaven commands him, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only, excuse me, son from me. So the condition of this divine intervention is that Abraham obeyed. Abraham's obedience was the condition of the covenant, at least in part. Again, he reiterates verse 16, the angel of the Lord speaks a second time and says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. So you see there are two, it's a twofold covenant condition, if you will. The one is the commitment of God himself, who has sworn by himself, again, for record of that ceremony, that's Genesis 15, where the Lord swears by his own hurt. In so many words, that event proclaims, may I, God himself speaking, be like these animals if I should ever break my covenant. God swears by his own uh, hurt, to himself, having no one hired to swear to, and that is a condition of the covenant, the faithfulness of Almighty God. There's another condition, though. Uh, By myself I have sworn, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. That second condition has to do with the obedience of Abraham. There's a twofold covenant, an event in this covenant that was conditional of its fulfillment. Because God swore by himself to complete the covenant, it came to pass. This lays the background of this, or the background for this, of course, was laid in the solemn ratification of Genesis 15. But secondly, listen to this, because of his son's obedience, yes, Abraham, but ultimately the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the covenant would also be fulfilled. Now, provisionally, Abraham was commended for his obedience and that covenant condition was fulfilled. But typologically, symbolically, this spoke of a son of Abraham to come whose perfect obedience would secure the covenant, ultimately speaking. This was the son of Abraham. Like we said before, he too would be tested. And that test was no small matter. No one on earth has ever been tested to this excruciating degree. So excruciating was the probation of our Lord Jesus Christ and the weight of our sin laid upon him that he cried out in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be thy will, could you take this cup? We understand that cup to be God's wrath, the wrath of a just God poured out for the sins of the elect. If it be your will, could you take this cup from me? And then what does Christ finally respond to the Father? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the perfect fulfillment of obedience that Abraham prefigured. Because Jesus Christ was obedient, even unto the point of death, 
to bear the weight and consequences and the suffering of a just God, even the wrath of God poured out on him for our sins, the covenant is confirmed. Because the son of Abraham was obedient even unto the point of death. You see, Abraham was obedient even unto the point of the death of his son. But there would be a son of Abraham who was obedient even up to the point of his own death, and he did die. And upon that obedience is based our justification. Our sins are atoned for, washed away, because their punishment is satisfied in the son of Abraham who obeyed unto his own death. These are the conditions of covenant. So this passage speaks to the reward and favor that is deserving of the one whose obedience satisfies the conditions of covenant. And I wish I had time to go there, but on your own time, I was reminded of this verse again in our conference yesterday at LifeSpring. Daniel 7, 13 through 14, it's a prophetic picture of the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, and the ascension of the, of the Son of Man, Jesus, before the Father, and receiving as a reward for His sufferings all the kingdoms of the earth. I submit to you that the rewards that are promised to Abraham in this covenant passage is a parallel to the rewards that are promised the son of Abraham upon his obedience that are pictured in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. In other words, because Jesus Christ was obedient to the point of death, he too is rewarded. And what is his reward? Ownership and dominion of the kingdoms and authorities of this earth from then till now and as long as the Lord tarries. Finally, as the chapter, this chapter in Abraham's life closes, it seems anticlimactic, does it not? So what would you do after God himself speaks to you three times from glory? What would you do after experiencing this incredible event? Well, Abraham did this. He returned to his young man, then arose, and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, it seems fairly mundane at first glance. Then verse 20 continues with something quite ordinary. Now, after these things, it was told Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz and his, uh, his firstborn Buzz, his brother, and so forth. But there's an important parenthesis in this list of relatives, and that comes in verse 23. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Why is that important? Where well, there's a foreshadowing of a wife for Isaac. So how does Abraham respond after receiving this incredible covenant revelation. He goes back to live in the land of a king, Abimelech, king of Gerar, at the place where he cut covenant with the pagan king as a demonstration of his blessing to the nations. He, see, he sets up camp in this land to be a blessing and to continue to testify to the nation, if you will, of Gerar and to witness to Abimelech and others that Jesus Christ to come is king and has confirmed his word through his servant, Abraham. And this is a message to Gerar. So that's an application of Abraham in light of this. He simply went where he was called to be a light. And then the second application is that Abraham would seek a wife suitable for his son. Why? Because if his son didn't get married, they wouldn't have children. And if they didn't have children, their children's children wouldn't have children and so on. And so you see that sometimes the very ordinary elements of your day-to-day -day calling in life actually fit into God's big purposes and plans. Now, we think of Abraham as an incredible, amazing, supernaturally endowed, Holy Spirit visited on a day-to-day -day basis, super-powered saint. 
But there were a few moments in Abraham's life that were absolutely staggering, don't get me wrong. But let's not kid ourselves. The day-to-day life of Abraham was ordinary and mundane by most accounts. He had to tend flocks, tend herds. He had to settle disputes. He had to deal with scenarios and droughts and plant crops and move his cattle and all of these things that come with the day-to-day schedule of a herdsman. Nevertheless, Abraham in his calling as a herdsman, as a patriarch, as a family leader, did two things. He resided in the place where God had called him and he was looking for a wife for his son. And through these ordinary means... God would advance his covenant purposes to the possession of the gates of future generations and the advancement of the gospel to the distant regions of the earth. There's a good application for us, is there not? So the Bible talks about amazing, supernatural, spectacular events, but don't forget, the means of being faithful to God's call often is as simple as applying his scripture in your ordinary job, so to speak, when you wake up tomorrow morning. And these things are redeemed as a means where God, whereby God advances his calling so long as we are obedient on a day-to-day to seek to apply his word and the principles of his promises to wherever he calls us. Maybe that means witnessing to somebody at work on Monday morning. Maybe that means being faithful to fulfill the task kids that your parents have given you by way of homeschool or chores. Any number of these things Abraham and his like could relate to as the ordinary obedience on a day-to-day that God would somehow mysteriously use to advance the glorious cause of his cosmic purposes in all the universe to the praise of his great name. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the glorious sweeping elements and we thank you for the practical application of your Holy Scripture. Truly, you are comprehensive in your instruction and what you lay out for us, your people. And we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you give us the equipping and the tools to grow in our walk with you, to be more sanctified, to turn from sin, and to walk in a manner worthy of our call. We pray that all of this would happen as a result of your word proclaimed and your word soaked in, Lord, as we have listened to it this day, insofar as it has been accurately proclaimed. Also, we pray for the lost those whom we are called to be a light to, that they would hear the gospel lived through our lives, proclaimed from the pulpits of gospel-believing churches in this land, that they might repent and believe. So at the day of your trial, probation, testing, where the reckoning of our society is due and you visit us, that you might find a people, a remnant at least, if not those who have taken possession of the very gates of the city, glorifying your holy name and welcoming the day of your return in a glorious covenant meal. This, Lord, we look forward to as your spirit continues to work your mighty plan in history through the proclamation of the gospel. Help us to be faithful to that task, even in the simple things tomorrow, that you might be glorified and your people encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.